Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening. Welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all blessedly without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Mr. Kevin Bowe. Minneapolis, Minnesota may call to mind long, dark winters and Garrison Keillor's weekly peen to sensible Midwestern values, a prairie home companion, but the city has always had a very rich music tradition. This fertile scene is home to respected artists like The Replacements, Husker Du, The Jayhawks, Semisonic, and the purple one himself, Prince. Go ahead and add hometown artist Kevin Bowe to that list of top-notch talent from the City of Lakes. Since 1995, Bowe has played or written with a seemingly every artist in the Twin Cities and several from far beyond. His credits include co-writing with Etta James and Leonard Skinnerd, recording and touring with Paul Westerberg and Freddie Johnston, scoring spots for ESPN, and a thousand other gigs, sessions, songs, and TV placements that we just don't have the space to list. His most recent record, recorded with his band The Okima Prophets, is called Natchez Trace, and it is a solid effort that showcases Bo's considerable skills as a writer, producer, instrumentalist, and performer. Welcome to Independence Day, Kevin Bo. Hey, man, it's a pleasure. Uh, and it's so nice to have somebody from elsewhere as well. I mean, especially a Midwestern locale. That's my home turf back there. Tell us, we were just discussing this before we came on, just because it's California and it's like sunny and 81 degrees in California right now. Tell me what the weather forecast is where you are. Well, we should be doing this interview in person. I should be out there. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> uh, I agree. This is bad even for, uh, for, Min- for Minneapolis because April... You know, the crocuses start blooming and the lawn starts greening up and stuff like that. But this April, I don't know what's happened, but we just got snow and sleet today, and we're supposed to get possibly eight inches of snow tomorrow. Uh, so you said so you, you just got, you're expecting snow? Tomorrow we could get eight inches of snow, and it's cold out and windy. Oh, really bad. That's, that's bad. You know, it's, I remember that so distinctly from growing up there, and we're going to get to the music here very, very shortly, but... I mean, the weather was such like a burden, but I think that has, I think that plays into why it's such a musically fertile scene. I mean, I think you know it kind of locks people into their houses, and they like they get a bottle of something and a guitar, and they write great songs. <laughs> it's I've heard that said many times about why so much great music comes out of Minneapolis, and I, I guess it's there really is not a lot else to do at least five six months of the year. Yeah, well, that's just it. You know, like, I never had any interest in having a motorcycle until I moved to California. But I think I realized because when I lived in Chicago, I could only ride it from about noon on July Fourth until about sundown on like August tenth. <laughs> After that, it was too cold. Um, we are uh, pale uh, and miserable, but hardworking folk here. Exactly. That's Garrison Keillor's whole. Uh, that's his whole mo. So I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm so happy that you took the time out. I mean, you're a very busy guy. So thank you in advance for for taking the time out to be on the show. I'm looking forward to hearing all about what you got going on. But, you know, this, it seems to me like reading your bio, checking out what you're all about, you're kind of all over the place. Like you do a lot of different things, but you're full-time music, correct? Yeah, I haven't had a day job in uh, over 20 years. And it's, it's true, my, my resume is all over the place, which I think I can't do it any other way because I'm kind of naturally a, a restless yeah. person, I guess. But um, I think sometimes that's hurt me, though, because, uh, well, you know how like mainstream radio is today everything's right. very formatted right it's our, you know artists are like coca-cola they at the, at the coca-cola plant they can't wake up one day and say you know we're just we're feeling like putting licorice in it today you know 
They right. can't do that. It has to be the same thing. I think the pr- a lot of that is expected of producers and writers too. And um, I just I don't work that way. I, I like to um, mess around with a lot of different styles. Yeah, well, definitely. You know, and that's something. You know, when I say you're all over the place, I don't mean that as an insult in any way. I mean that's a really cool no, thing. No, I mean, no, I'm just saying I think it might have it might have helped me back in as far as the industry goes or what's right. left of the industry. You know. Right, right, exactly. So, but you know, tell me, you know, I mean, I've got the list of what you do in front of me here, but tell me, you know, tell our listeners, like, what, what is it that, like, what's your main bread and butter gig these days? I mean, you know, you've got this album, we'll definitely talk about that, we're going to spend some tracks off of that, but, you know, what, what would you consider, like, your main bread and butter gig that you pay your bills with? Well, what keeps you in beer? In the 90s, I made my living throughout the 90s just simply as a songwriter. I didn't know how to engineer or produce or mix or anything. Okay. Um, and then in the 2000s, I didn't... I kind of ran out of rock stars. Johnny Lang's career kind of, you know, took a dip and some of the other projects I was working on didn't pan out. And so I realized I wasn't going to be able to make a living just writing songs anymore. I was like a lot of people who managed to stay in the business. I was going to have to learn a lot of different things. And so I learned how to engineer and mix and produce and started doing all that. So I really have 10 different jobs I do now. Um, The main ones being a writer producer, Uh But like right now, like, okay, this week I am producing an album for a local indie rock band called Communist Daughter. Uh Um, I'm mixing a jazz record for uh, 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 kind of a traditional jazz singer, and I'm working on a bunch of spots of kind of muscly 90s alt-rock guitar stuff for ESPN. Yeah. and there's, I think there's something else too, but I can't remember what it is. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious now. You know, Minnesota or Minneapolis. You know, we, I, I guess you would almost consider that a secondary market. You know, compared to like New York, Chicago, L.A. Um, I mean, it's it's sure, definitely yeah, a big definitely. city. But have you found it? I mean, was there ever temptation to move to a, a bigger? a bigger city, like so many people I know, both musicians that I interview on the show here or musicians that are passing through town, like so many of them are from, you know, Chicago, New York, L.A., Nashville, Austin. I mean, Minneapolis is certainly very high on that list, but was there ever temptation to go somewhere bigger? Yes, definitely. As a matter of fact, my wife and I, in in 2001, I I had a publishing, different publishing deals, big ones all through the 90s. And then, you know, 2001 was an interesting year because 9-11 happened. The economy started shrinking, uh, partly from that. And then also that was the first year that the, that the, the 90s boom, uh, in the, in the, at the major label level in the music, uh, started, uh, you know, receding. Right. Um, and I'm not saying the music business has been receding since then, but at the major label and major publisher level, that's when numbers started going down. So, I had my first bad year after many, many, many good years. And so, of course, I thought, well, you know, I better move to L.A. or right. Nashville. Those were my choices. And I went to L.A. and I looked at real estate. And I came home with my tail between my legs. Yeah. I realized just because you're doing great in Minneapolis, that doesn't mean you can afford, uh, you know, the, the style to which I'd become accustomed, you know, right. in L.A. So, plus, I realized you'd be spending way too much time in the car and way too much time dog paddling. Yeah. Um, just fighting hard to stay in one place instead of get ahead. And the other thing I realized is I'm not the kind of person, and this is this is a character flaw on my part. I think <laughs> if I lived in LA, I think it would make me feel bad by being surrounded by people who are selling way more records than me. Right. It's not like I like to tool around in in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis, how do I put this? 
in Minneapolis, it's all up to you. You're alone. Right. You know what I mean? There's other musicians here and stuff like that, but there's no scene to, so there's no competitiveness as far as what I do for a living. You know what I mean? Right. It's easy for me to just go about my life and be completely focused on work. Whereas in LA, I feel like I'd pull up to a stoplight and look to my right and there'd be a guy in a Hummer who has a number one record this week. And I'm just the kind of guy where if I look at that, it makes me feel like, why should I even try? I'm not as good as these people. So, um, I, I came back and then we went and looked at real estate in Nashville, which is super cheap. Yeah. All right. Probably about 20, 20, 20 to 30% less than comparable real estate in Minneapolis. But I realized that you can fool yourself all you want, but if you move to Nashville, you are going to be doing country music or contemporary Christian music. Um, and I don't mind uh, dipping my toe in that pool once in a while, but I didn't want to be beholden to that. I've always been able to make a living in music doing only what I want to do. That's and a beautiful I feel thing, like I man. Could do that in Nashville. So I stayed here, and now I'm uh, the last few years. I'm am so glad I did because I've had so many lucky breaks here the last uh, twelve, thirteen years. Yeah, well, you're doing great work, man. I mean, I, I really like this record quite a bit. I mean, and you know, as your career is all over the place, I mean, I don't want to say the record is completely all over the place, but you've got different stylistic turns in there. I mean, you've got like the bread and butter Minneapolis replacements kind of thing going on. You've got the kind of, I hate to use the word, but like the no depression alt country thing going on, but that's a style that's very, very dear to my heart. So it's basically, you know, it's just rock and roll with pedal steels essentially. And then you've got like, you know, harder rocking stuff, some really gentle stuff. And you've got that kind of, that poppy tune, you know, with the almost spoken word vocal. So I, I totally, yeah, I encourage people to pick this up. Where can people buy the record? Is, is it, are you selling it through your website, iTunes or where? Yeah, they can go to kevinbow.com or it's on all the usual suspect uh, download yeah. uh, sites with iTunes and Rhapsody and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's on CD Baby also. But you're, you're, I think your take on it is very correct. I'm a big fan of 70s records. Like I looked at the, I opened up the year view on my iPod, uh, on my iTunes rather the other day. And I noticed that by far most of the music on my iTunes of like six, 7,000 songs, not, I mean, there's music from the thirties, there's music from today, right. but a lot of it is between 1964 and 76. Those were good and, years, man. If you're going to be a fan of a particular like decade and change, that's a good place to go. There's a lot of great stuff in there for whatever reason, maybe it's how old I am or whatever, but it's, that's like, that's my, those are my jams. And one thing I like about records from that time period, particularly maybe 68 through 76, is that within albums, there was so much variety. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if, even if you listen to your what's considered stodgy classic rock these days, that music took far more, many more musical stylistic risks, you know, within one Joni Mitchell record or Led Zeppelin record. Yeah. To, you know, in the 80s, record companies came up with this idea of, we will give you the green light to put out your record when we hear a single or three. Yeah. And then the rest of the songs need to sound like that single because radio is formatted, so we need to be formatted. And I just don't subscribe to that. Again, I've been criticized for it, you know, before. I wouldn't say by a lot of people, but by some people. But again, I just, my biggest fear in life is being bored. And I just yeah. certainly don't want to be bored by my own record. So okay. I just kind of, you know, as usual, did whatever I wanted to do. So it is all over the map. Of course, you know, but I mean, it sticks, you know, it sticks within the same ballpark, you know, like nobody, nobody's going to be like offended. Like if somebody wants to hear Katy Perry, they're, they're, they're barking up the wrong tree anyway. But if they go to the record, <laughs> there's going to be enough there for someone who's fan of rock, fan of like power pop, fan of like, 
you know, the the good side of country, uh, you know, the revisionist country, the, or the, the traditional country, rather. Um, you know, there's going to be enough there. So I, I totally encourage people to go out and pick this thing up. And you know, let's, let's hear a little bit of this. We've got so much to talk about in terms of Minneapolis and what you're up to and what you're doing and what you did. We can talk about South by Southwest. But I want to give people uh, just a sample of what you're all about. This is the track In Too Deep from Natchez Trace. Uh, and this is getting some airplay elsewhere. So we're happy to kind of extend that. So this is... Uh, we've got Kevin Bow on Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. This is the track In Too Deep from his most recent record, Natchez Trace. Kevin Bow on Independence Day. That is the track 
It's in too deep. In too deep. In too deep from Natchez Trace. And you said, dude, that's getting some airplay. Like that airplay seems to be such uh, an esoteric thing anymore. Like we we dropped Katy Perry's name a few minutes ago. Like Katy Perry's getting airplay, and like Mumford and she Sons. She does. Are, and, Katy and like, Perry does get airplay. <laughs> and like Mumford and Sons are getting airplay. And we were just having a Facebook conversation about that earlier today. Well, like I, I posted something on there about you know is um, I think I'm suffering from Mumford Mumford Lumineers fatigue. Like on on one hand, I'm so happy that like bands who play instruments and write actual songs are getting airplay, but that four on the floor thing is like really getting under my skin, man. I, I don't know if I can take it much more. <laughs> um, well, air, airplay. It's it's. This is the first record I've ever done where I hired an independent radio promoter dude to uh, pitch it to radio because I certainly wasn't going to do it and I think it's pointless to just put them in envelopes and mail them out because radio stations are being inundated with so much stuff and I I didn't have to spend a lot of money making this record because I own my own studio Uh Um, so and I didn't have to pay a producer an engineer or a mixer because I'm him and him and him so I took the money I saved and I hired a publicist and an independent radio promoter neither of which I'd ever worked with before um and I did my research, though, and I Googled around and found, I found just the right guy. Uh-huh. Uh, his name is Bob. And he's from New Jersey. And he got it, this thing played all over the country. Um, he didn't pitch to college radio because I think this music is maybe a little... a little Sophisticated, uh, lean, perhaps? Leans a little mature, a little old for college yeah. radio. Um, he pitched AAA and public radio. Uh-huh. And we got it played all over the place. It did really, really well. I was very pleasantly surprised. And then the publicist, man, I've never worked with a publicist before. I never knew anything about that world or how it works because, you know, I'm always in the studio. I don't, I don't right. ever have to sell the records. So um, she got uh, one song uh, used as Rolling Stone, uh, Rolling Stone Magazine's download of the day. Nice. She got all kinds of articles about it and stuff like that. And so, you know, the word got out about the record and it's leading to more and more gigs and touring opportunities. We're probably looking at Europe by the end of the year. And it, so, uh, and it feels so much, I mean, I'm, I guess I kind of assume this is kind of your experience. It links for so long, it feels like you're kind of banging your head against the wall. Like you may be working in the business and doing radio spots and that kind of thing, but like getting you know, your own music off the ground, getting people to listen to it, getting, you know, hiring people to do it, obviously, is, is kind of like a shortcut. But so many musicians are broke, you know? So yeah. it, you know, I think it was good that you could kind of, you know, you're making money in the music business elsewhere, so you could kind of spread that around and, like, I don't want to call it a loss leader almost, but you found a no, way to... totally, exactly, that's exactly what it is. This whole, and that's the joy of the Okima process, is that the, it's, a, it's a PH, not an F, and I'm not trying to turn it into the other thing. Right. But we have so much fun doing this because I never have to exert that pressure of trying to turn this into a living. I uh, do many other things for a living in music, all of them fun. And um, I, so this is, uh, this is the profits. We, uh, we only do what we want to do. We don't, ha- we don't care what anyone else thinks. We don't have to care what anyone else thinks. When other people like it, that's great. But if they don't, we don't care. We just did an East Coast tour, and some rooms were full, some rooms were empty. It has, I mean, I, I prefer playing to a full room, but we still have a gas playing if nobody's there because we are having so much fun. The three of us, me and my bass player and my drummer, have played on a million people's records together. We're kind of the wrecking crew of, of Minneapolis lately. 
Right, and when you say and wrecking so, crew, you're referencing is, that. Excuse me. I'm saying when you, I'm just going to clue people in. Like when you're talking about the wrecking crew, like outside the music business, people might not know that term. Uh, that's like the, the those are the Motown cats, right? The Mo, the wrecking crew. Well, the guys that played on the, the L.A. Cats actually. Oh, Hal Blaine I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And yeah. um, this group of musicians that played on all the Sunny and Cher and Monkeys right. records at the time very often uncredited. We're right. usually credited, but, right, um, right, right. you know, we, we're kind of like this invisible band. And so when we go out on tour or do our own records, it's kind of like mom and dad are out of town and now we get to do what we want. <laughs> you know who else was like that at one point? It was Toto. Like Totally. All those guys in that band, Steve, uh, Steve Lukather, the, uh, David Page, uh, the two Picaros, like they were L.A. studio cats. And I think actually the band Mr. Mr., uh, remember Kyrie and Broken Absolutely. Wings back in the 80s? Those guys were studio cats who somebody was a good enough writer and they got a record together and, <laughs> you know, they got a couple hits out of the deal, you know? So it's it's a, it's good work if you can get it. It is good work, but we I like the other stuff too because we tour as Freddie Johnston's backup band. He's a guy who had yeah. a big hit in the 90s with uh, Bad Reputation. Yeah, we had him but on we, our show not too long ago. I love Freddie. Oh, great. Okay. Well, we tour as his band. And um, we'll usually do an opening set under our own name. We just recently started doing some dates with Gary Lewis from the Jayhawks. Uh huh. Big fan and, of Gary's. Yeah, really. A great, that's was fun. Our debut with that was at South by Southwest a couple weeks ago. And then uh, the other big thing recently that we did, not our bass player, but myself and the drummer Peter Anderson, uh, were part of this replacements reunion EP to benefit their ailing guitar player uh, Slim Dunlop. Yeah. And. So, um, yeah, we just, we play with so many different people. Um, and again, I, I, to tell you the truth, if I had to just do the Okima Prophets full-time, most people, it's their dream to be a rock star. Yeah. I think I would be really bored. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're in such a unique position, man, because you're, you're like a big fish in a little pond, which yeah, is, exactly. you know, and I, I mean, you know, looking at my own life, I mean, that's something I learned along the way. Like, I mean, yes, I live in Los Angeles now, but... You know, being from Chicago, going to school in like little cow towns in central Illinois. I mean, that's why I chose the college I did rather than being like student number 72451 uh, at some big giant college. And like I paid a little more, went to a small college and like really like got something out of it. Like I could do stuff like I when I would work in the recording studio in college, like I was the guy doing it. I was the guy with my hands on the board. I didn't have to like wait till I was a senior just to even get in the door, you know. Um, and you're 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 like in a similar position there in Minneapolis. Um, Although I will say, I'll I, I'll tell you, I might be a big fish in Minneapolis as far as like actually selling records and making a living in the music business and writing songs and and things like that. Um, but as far as like the music scene here in the clubs and stuff like that, right. my band is not a big deal. Minneapolis is one hundred percent totally focused on two things, indie rock and indie hip-hop. Yeah. We are not uh, a typical indie rock band. We get some respect in those circles and things like that, but um, the clubs here and the, the, the radio station here, the, uh, the current, is you know very much dominated by um, indie rock bands and, and that, that style, and we're, Minneapolis is a big town for indie hip-hop, really great uh, original hip hop uh -huh. like the Rhyme Sayers Collective with Atmosphere and Brother Ali and that stuff, and we don't fit into any of that because we're essentially a replacements Rolling Stones style rock and roll band. And indie rock is cool and everything, but I'll tell you one thing: there's not very much roll in it right now. Yeah, you know, indie is so funny because if you go back to the '90s, you know, late '80s, uh, there was a style called alternative. 
which right. at the time was this catch-all. It was like a beautiful thing when it first started. It was a catch-all for all these bands that nobody, there wasn't classic rock, there wasn't British rock, it wasn't punk, it wasn't metal, it wasn't hard rock. It was just all these bands that were kind of somewhere else. Um, and, you know, Cowboy Junkies would be in there with even like John Hyatt because they didn't know where else to put these bands. And Los Lobos. And Los example, Lobos. Yeah. These bands were like super creative. And then Alternative kind of somehow codified into Bush, uh, you know, that band Bush and like whatever yes, they yes. did, that like aggress- aggro thing. And then yeah. it became it became like a marketing thing. And I kind of think that's what's happening to indie now is that before, you know, at one point maybe it was just all you had to do was be independent. Uh, which is a big, big buzzword nowadays because almost everybody's independent on some level, it seems, except for the top echelon. And uh, so now, you know, now it's indies becoming not just a sound. You know, it's not just a guy with a like. I remember I think I always think about you know the the, the white belts and hanging a triangle from your bass player's headstock, like <laughs> uh, you know a triangle that you ting on. Like that was like, that's like right. an indie band thing. And I don't mean to bang on those guys and girls. They're doing cool stuff, but it's kind of becoming its corporate like a, a bin you know if there was a record store it would be in a bin but, but that's like you know american pop culture eats itself totally i mean it's like a cyclical thing you know you anytime someone does something great or there's a movement or something like that it always has a shelf life sadly lately because information changes hands so much more quickly the shelf life is 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 shorter uh than it ever was before but you know, my whole thing is I just, the thing that really draws me to not all music that I love, but most is soul and songwriting. Yeah. And I think that one thing, you know, that uh, makes it so that I have to sift through, I'm not saying I don't like indie rock, but I have to sift through a lot yeah. before I find something great. The latest thing I heard, one of the latest things I heard that I love is Tame Impala. Uh-huh. Love them. That's a, that's a cool band. They're doing really great stuff. But a lot of indie rock to me right now is based on sounds and style yeah. rather than songs and soul and good singing. And that is um, hard for me because I know how to make those sounds in Pro Tools. Anyone can make those sounds. You know what I mean? A guy who uses plugins in a weird way or guitar effect in a weird way, he might be... That To me, that's it's cool, but that's frosting. And I'm, at this point in my life, more interested in cake. Can you write a song? You yeah. know what I mean? Regardless of style. And can you have someone who sings it? I don't need to hear Mariah Carey singing it. In fact, I don't want to hear Mariah Carey singing it. Yeah. Just someone with a vocal style that makes me feel something. And I do feel like a lot of indie rock right now is more about a laptop than a heart and, <laughs> and, a, and a two hands. And so that's always what I'm looking for, whether it's Bob Dylan or the New York Dolls or the Replacements or um, Nick Drake. You know yeah. what I mean? If someone... Who, who can write a song and sing it well and make me feel something, which doesn't mean that I don't like gadgets and Pro Tools and stuff like that. I'm as much of a nerd as anybody yeah. else. But if there's nothing underneath it, then yeah. I'm instantly bored. Yeah, well, you need to use its power for good instead of for evil, I guess is what I'm or, getting at. Yeah, for, you can, I don't like it when people use its power to cover up the fact that there's nothing there. Yeah. Uh, underneath that Pro Tools, there has to be a song. And the only four things that are in a song are beat, melody, harmony, and lyric. Yeah. Nobody has ever invented anything else. Anything else is production or performance. It's not songwriting. So if at least two or three of those four things aren't there in a way that really you know gets me going, then you've I lost my interest. You know. Yeah. 
you know, in the internet, you know, the, the way things are in music now, the internet has really expanded our ability to find these bands. I mean, there's so many people making music, uh, and there really is such great stuff out there. Like, in some ways, you could make the case. I mean, there's, I don't feel like we've got a Zeppelin now, or we don't have a Beatles now, but there's a, but there are so many bands doing great stuff, but it's just kind of harder to find because it all gets lost in the ether because there's so much. Uh, I, I agree. You know, do, do you read that Bob Lefsitz newsletter? Uh, yeah. Okay, I, I agree with some of what he says. I do often find him very mean-spirited, which is not yeah. something that I condone or agree with. I don't like, I just don't like mean people, and I think Bob gets off on being mean. But he's also not an idiot, and a lot of the stuff he says from a factual perspective, even if I don't like the way he says it, uh, it's, 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 I find truth in it. And one thing he said a week ago, I hadn't, I've been so busy lately. I've been trashing his emails and not having time to read them. Cause I, <laughs> I, I try and keep the, no, because I, there's only so much information I can take in in a day. It's like, am I going to read Lefsitz email yeah. or am I going to play catch with my dog, which is the, my only chance I'm going to have to do that today. I'm going to go for the dog. Yeah, totally. So uh, I, but I read one of his for the first time in weeks, a couple of few days ago, and it was about, he blames this on all the bands that are making crappy to mediocre music, and he says that they should stop because they're preventing us all from getting to the good stuff. And, again, I don't like the joy in which he, he obviously takes in ripping on people, yeah. but I did get it. The difference under the old system where the major labels controlled the means of distribution, that was a bummer because you had a corporations in charge of what we could and couldn't do as far as getting our music out. But on the other hand... Um, it was at least there wasn't so many millions of of, of, yeah. of mediocre to to, uh, to bad records out there. Yeah, exactly. Well, the barriers to entry have been completely removed. You know, I completely I, I, removed. I frequently use the analogy. You know, uh, pick. Uh, and this is a question for you. Just uh, pick your favorite professional sport, whatever it is. This is just for the analogy's sake. Uh, downhill skiing. Okay, pick something that's a team sport, like. Uh, baseball, basketball, soccer. Baseball or, would be, okay. be baseball. Baseball. Let's do baseball. So, how many guys are on a baseball roster? On a, on a team, or I mean, on the field at one time. Uh, no, no. The, how many, how many guys like are on the the team? Like, I know there's you know, there's nine guys on the field, but there's another what ten in the bullpen? I don't even know. I suppose, yeah. So let's let's say there's let's just say there's twenty guys on a team, right? Okay. And there are X number of teams in the league. You know, I don't know thirty, forty, whatever there are. Most most dudes, most like hardcore American dudes would know this number, but I don't. Um, so you know, so there's a few hundred guys playing professional baseball at that level, and that's kind of the old model of the music business. Now, <laughs> I, I like where you're going. <laughs> now, what happened? <laughs> see, but that's the thing. The thing is, it weeded out. Like, it in some ways, it crushed people's dreams because people who might have been amazing ball players never even tried because the barrier to entry was too high. So now, what's happened True. is with these barriers to entry completely eradicated. Now we have, we have ten million teams. And there are 12,000 people on each team. So there are people playing ball now that never would have even tried before who are amazing. And I'm glad that they did because they we, you know, likely wouldn't have tried before. But also what? at the same time, on the flip side of that really ugly, sharp coin is there's like 20 billion bazillion bands out there that like – just flood everybody's input. It's like information overload. We can't possibly ingest this much music. So, you know, I don't know. Is it good? Is it bad? I, I think it's probably both. Um, well, I, I think it's both. I think, though, uh, Lester's point and yours is that here we, you and I are out in the stands as music fans, and we got to watch 90 batters come up before we see one that's even good enough to close right. to get being good enough to get a hit. Yeah. <laughs> and so who has time to sit through 
90 crappy batters that yeah. should be on minor league teams or being plumbers for a living. Indeed. You know, and it sounds cruel, but it is just forget take the emotion out of it. The truth is that anyone who's got a Mac laptop and Logic software and a guitar can make a record, and they all are making records, and right. they're all putting them on iTunes. Yeah. For sale. I, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal out there. Um, but on the other hand, I'm still having a lot of fun finding new, great new music. Yeah. Uh, I was so happy the other day when Tame Impala came on the radio, you know, and, yeah. um, and I was like, oh my God, what's this? Yeah. You know, so. There are people doing good stuff. So I just want to check in with our people. So we've been kind of rolling, getting to the bottom of the problems in the modern music business. Uh, I'm talking to Kevin Bowe. He's joining us from beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's Bowe with an E, B-O-W-E. And you can learn everything you need to know about him at KevinBowe.com. He's also on the Facebook, Facebook, but he, uh, he uses his band moniker for that. So it's Kevin Bowe and the Okima Prophets, or Okima. Do you pronounce it Okima or Okima? I'm curious. It's Okima. It's, uh, it's Okima. Woody Guthrie's birthplace. Yeah, no, I knew, yeah, I knew that Sunvolt had a record named with the same thing, but I, I've, I was always, I've always wondered. I've, I've even got that record, and I, I know Woody's history, but I, I never know if it's Okima or Okima. You got to go to Okima, man. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a, it's a magical place. They have a folk festival there. I've played a few times. Nice. The Woody Guthrie Free Folk Festival, and it's, uh, man, it's an amazing place. Woody, uh, Woody's got some lineage behind him, but uh, but tonight my guest, like I said, Kevin Bow. Learn about him at kevinbow.com. I want to get play a little bit of more music from the this most recent record. It came out in 2012. I didn't get a month out of this. Was it early last year? Late last year? In the middle somewhere? A middle of the year, I think. Okay. Okay, and that's that's good enough for the people I, I roll with. Uh, but yeah, it's great. It's fresh. It's new. Um, you know, if you're fans of Ryan Adams, the place, the replacements. If you're fans of power pop music, if you're fans of uh, the No Depression bands, I'm sure you'll eat this stuff up. I uh, know I've, I've been spinning it in my house since I got this a couple months back. So well, thank you. This is the track "Never Don't Stay" from Kevin Bow on Independence Day. Right. 
name is Joe Armstrong. That was Kevin Bowe. He is my guest tonight on Independence Day. He's joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. I hate to tell you this, but they're expecting snow tomorrow. <laughs> I swear, I swear I'm not taunting you, man. I am right there with you. I can't tell you how many times because I, I, Chicago's my hometown. I can't tell you how many times, you know, you get a little bit of nice weather and then, you know, you're wearing I call it shorts and boots weather when it gets to be like fifty. During the day, there's like chicks sunbathing on North Street Beach. Uh, North oh, yeah, North absolutely. Beach. And then and the hammer drops again, and you get snow. And it's like, man, it just puts me in a dour, dour mood. Uh, so, well, listen to my record. It yeah. all makes sense. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, one is a, that one is kind of a happy one, but there's a lot of... Uh, yeah. There's a lot of... Uh, pretty morose stuff on the on but, the record and I, I i think it's pretty well justified yeah yeah but it's great stuff man i i swear i mean people from that part of the world it's like there's a depth of character that i think people don't have in places in warmer climes so at least overall uh, i think there's a depth of passive aggressiveness definitely <laughs> if you don't see more, more morbidity uh yeah. but but it's great man i mean that is great that's great power pop you know, you. Th- that's like, uh, I, it's like, I don't want to say textbook because that might be misinterpreted the wrong way, but that's like textbook power pop, you know, blasting power chords in the best way, but yet still with guitar tone, not like the Metallica kind of power chords. And then I've been, I've, the first time I put this on, is that a major two that I'm hearing in that like end of the chorus? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, a big fan of those chords. I'll pick up a lot of my. Uh-huh recording stuff from uh, Westerberg's uh, rhythm guitar playing, because I did a tour. I mean, I've always been, he's always been my biggest, uh, my favorite songwriter and my biggest influence as far as like right here in my backyard, because uh, we kind of came up in the clubs uh, together, and I was always just watching him, you know, yeah. and, and I would even ask him, you know, like, how do you play this song of yours? And he was just kind enough to show me. And then I did a tour with him a few years ago playing guitar in this Paul Westerberg and his only friends. And I got to watch him up close at work and had to learn a lot of the songs. And um, so, yeah, his, his stuff has really seeped into, uh, uh, into my, uh, my stuff. It's, his rhythm guitar playing is really a, it's a, man, it's a, it's a national treasure. Yeah, you know, and, and it's so funny because in music, you know, to get like down to guitar and nitty-gritty, now we've already referenced the major two for all you music theory geeks out there. Uh, rhythm guitar is something, it's kind of like the, it's like unsung in a way, because as kids growing up learning how to play guitar and woodshedding in our bedrooms, like, you know, we all wanted to be Eddie Van Halen or or uh, the guy from Radiohead. Uh, what's that guy's right. name? Right. Um, and it's funny because I grew up, I wanted to be Pete Townsend because well, I thought, you know what, there's a guy who's not very good looking, who's got the world by the tail. Well, how did he do it? Right. And that's, that's I learned how to play guitar from the Live at Leeds album when I was a little, little kid. Yeah. Because you can pan it over to one speaker, and it's almost it's almost all uh, just guitar. Yeah. It's live, so there's not a lot of cheating going on. And uh, that's a great album to learn how to play guitar on. And then later on, the Ramones' first album. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Townsend because that's exactly where I was going with that point, which is that... Once I started really playing in bands, I figured out, you know, like when I was young, everybody wants to be the guitar slinger, and I was like the lead guitar player in our high school band. But then I had to convince someone to be the rhythm player, and they, a lot of times they just weren't solid. So then I would kind of try to cover both, which mm. made my life more complicated and took kind of the fun out of it. And then I figured out what I really liked more than anything was playing those big, jangly, grindy chords. And that's when I... It's fun, and uh, once you get into alternate tunings, like yeah. Westerberg does, and... Um, and 
kind of not getting fancy with the rhythm guitar, but figuring out your own way of doing it. Totally. Um, then you're really getting somewhere. And I think it really, it'll feed your songwriting certainly more than wanking guitar solos will. Totally. Totally. And that's it, you know, and that, that's when I, like, I got wise and figured out that what I really wanted to do was front bands and sing and play the rhythm guitar because I can do that. And then I'm self-contained. Like, I don't need exactly. a singer. I don't need a lead guitar player. I don't need, because I, you know, I'm still a functional guitar player. I can rip into a little solo if I need to. Um, you know, but that's where the glory is. And that's when I really started paying attention to these great songwriters who were like that. Um, you know, uh, guys like Matthew Sweet, who's got a, you know, his rhythm parts are amazing. Uh, yeah, you know, really Western underrated player. guitar player. Keith Richards, Keith um, Richards. There's just so many, um, you know, uh, Sylvain Sylvain in the New York Dolls. Yeah. Great rhythm guitar player. Uh, and and that's, you know, that's what got me into, what, who was that? I, I said, you know what I was going to get at? Like the ultimate rhythm guitar player, perhaps of all time, maybe other than Keith, is is uh, uh, Brian Young, Angus Young's brother from ACDC. Because everybody, and you never hear about that dude. Angus gets all the credit because he's got the shtick and he's got the outfit and, he, and he's a good he's a good guitar player, a good soloist. But you know who drives that band is absolutely is, is the brother. They're Malcolm, not and Brian, he's it's always Young. standing back there by the drummer. That's where I like to be. I yeah. like to be right by the right by the drummer. But the rhythm guitar playing is what led me into the songwriting. Yeah. I never started out, I started out wanting to be, like you just said, I was just, just like that. I wanted to be the fancy lead guitar player, but I quickly realized I was never going to be that guy. So I got to be a solid rhythm player and started writing. But I never made a nickel in music, really. Yeah. Until I was already about maybe 30, 32, and I wrote this song with uh, it's in standard tuning except for you drop the A string down to a G. Uh-huh. Was, uh, I remember I was trying to write a song that I was like, wonder what it would sound like if Robert Johnson took acid. <laughs> and I wrote a song called Riverside, kind of referencing his traveling Riverside yeah, yeah. blues. And a guy, a producer, heard it. A guy named David Z, a producer, a record producer from Minneapolis here, and he's already had sold millions of records. You know, doing uh, Big Head Todd and the Prince. All oh, right. Purple Rain and, you know, the Fine Young Cannibals and all this stuff. And he heard that song and he liked it and he cut it on the first Kenny Wayne Shepherd album, which he was producing. And so my first cut I ever got as a writer went platinum. And um, so it was late in coming, but when it came, it came really big. Hey, and congratulations, um, that's when I started that's... focusing on songwriting, but it was kind of relatively late in life. Yeah. And yeah, I noticed that you do a lot of co-writing. Um, you know, which mm-hmm. I which I think is kind of a, a strange and wonderful beast if you can pull it off. Like, um, you know, tell me just a little bit about how you approach that, or how do you find like these big names that you've written songs with? Well, I hated the idea at first because I started out like in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is not a songwriting town. Yeah, um, it's not like reputation. people are just getting together and writing songs. I mean, sometimes they have it done. It's not like national. Well, Mark and Gary not. did, but I think they were the only two. What's that? I said Mark Olson and Gary Loris did, but they were like the only two that would like get together and right. write songs. Right, but they're not like writing with a bunch of other people in town. Um, right. I've messed around with songwriting with Gary recently, but um, it's just not as... as song, Songwriting is a form of social currency in Nashville. It is not in Minneapolis. Um, so I always, like most people up here, I wrote alone. And when I got my big... I got that big Kenny Wayne Shepherd cut, and then I started to I kind of discovered or stumbled on Johnny Lang when he was 13 at a gig I was doing at Fargo and got to be friends and started writing songs with him. And then, um, you know, we got him signed to A&M and that was another two platinum records. So when you start doing like that, you know, numbers like that, then you're going to get snatched up by a publishing company. And the first thing the publishing company is going to do is say, well, we're sending you to Nashville. And I'm like, cool. Why? And they say to write songs with the big 
pro songwriters. And I'm like, with them? What do you mean with them? Because uh, I'd never co-written, and the idea sounded completely awkward to me. Yeah. But, and it was at first. It was very awkward. You know, I'm so walking around in Nashville with these country hit songwriters going, you know, I hope they don't figure out that I'm actually just an overripe Jewish punk. <laughs> um, so, but I, I ended up getting used to it, and now I can feel like I can co-write with anybody, because I have with, you know, probably, I don't know, 100 people. Yeah. And it's, it's great. Co-writing is great. I love writing with the artist who's going to hopefully do the song. Um, but I like writing with other writers too. Um, it's fantastic. You know, um, it's funny how uh, so much. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, sure. It's funny how like the things that you resist in life turn out being things that you love. So I have to, I wish I hadn't spent so much time resisting so many things like learning how to engineer and produce. That was my, you know, after I started co-writing, then, you know, in the, starting in about 2001, I started learning. I always told myself, you're, you're too stupid to, to, to mix and produce, you know, like an engineer. I started producing records, but not, not engineering them. And then I learned how to engineer and realized, well, I'm not too stupid to do, or I might be stupid, but I'm not too stupid to do that. You know yeah. a lot of engineers. Let's face it, they're not uh, all. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of engineers. I'm, uh, you know, there a lot of them are cool dudes. Um, and that was one thing. You but know, they're not geniuses. I mean, <laughs> anyone who wants to learn how to engineer, if you've got ears, you can do it. It's, it's more about your ears than what's in between. Yeah, and it's funny um, because people approach it from two different ways. Like some people approach it from the technical side, and they're not adept musicians. And some people approach it from the musician side and are not adept technicians. And there's a lot of crossover in the middle there. Um, but I think it's always fascinating to see where people started as as, a, as an engineer, both in the studio and as a live engineer. You know, I always approached. You know, I've, I've mixed symphonies before, and I thought that was a great, it was a really cool challenge. You know, so many engineers. Uh, who come? They, they just well, they just don't. They don't know anything other than like two guitars, bass, drums. Like you show up with an right. accordion and they're they're flummoxed. Uh, so you know, it's it's good to have that that skill set because it makes you more versatile. It gives you a little more control. Like it's hard to boss people around if you don't know what they're doing. You know, I always tell people I learned to play every every instrument in, in a rock band at least to some level of facility. Exactly. Uh, you don't have to be able to play it perfectly, but yeah. you have to. Love it and understand it. Totally. I'm always looking for something different to do because God, I've done two guitars, bass, and drums. Yeah, you know, so many times. Uh, some days I feel like if I have to do that, they, it better be Jimi Hendrix or I quit. Totally. Um, but you so saw the other day I got to do a Swedish folk instrument band that was made up of three nickel harpas, uh-huh. which is that Swedish violin with the yeah. kind of sitar-like resonating strings. It's a freaky instrument, and a, a pump organ. Ooh, one and, of my favorites. Uh, Bass mandolin. That was, it was great. These people were so good. It's my neighbor. Uh-huh. And uh, that was a great day. And I made samples of all the Nico Harpas so I could use that eerie droning sound oh, that's, uh, uh, in some other contexts. That's but, uh, fantastic. We all have such big like, ears, don't you know? we? In this business, we got to like find uh, find our sounds wherever we find them. And you know, while we're referencing two guitars, bass, drums, I mean, one thing I think it's really interesting about your band the Okima Prophets, uh, is the fact that you're a three-piece. You know, you don't see a ton of that. Like, every the guitar, two guitars, bass, drums is kind of like the industry standard. But every now and again, you get a band that's a three-piece. You get the police. It's hard. You get Yeah, it is hard. I mean, it's a lot of it's pressure really on you. It's really hard. Too, it's, it's hard uh, you're while you're on stage. The rest of the time, having a three-piece is awesome. Emotionally, oh, yeah. financially, we just did this East Coast tour. It's so cheap. And emotionally, it's so easy because it's easy. It's not easy, but it's easier to find. If you have four dudes in a band, one of them is a jerk. 
Okay. Yeah. I can't imagine who we would find to be the fourth person in our band because the three of us are like this perfect triangle. Yeah. Peter on drums and Steve on bass. They're just, they're my best pals and they're, uh, they're so great. Um, if we ever found that fourth person, maybe we'd do it, but financially it would kill us. You know, yeah. three piece, we're nimble, we're quick, we can turn on a dime. Yeah. But on stage, I have to work so hard. Yeah. And I'm limited in what I can do. I have to, I have a lot of nice guitars, but you know what I use on stage with that band is a Korean Epiphone Casino because uh-huh. two reasons. Number one, it's got P90s and they're big, fat, wide, snotty, angry sounding pickups. They're not subtle. And the, the other thing is Westerberg gave me that guitar, so oh, it's nice. got tons of mojo on it. Yeah, yeah. But I have other nice guitars, and I can't use them in that band because they don't sound as good. If Paul Westerberg gives you a guitar, you play it. Well, this one, yeah. This one, it's, it's, it, it's, it shouldn't sound or stay in tune as well as it does, but it's, it's like a magic guitar. You know, Probably not worth more than 300 bucks. Every instrument has, you know, a, a life or a soul. I don't say soul. It sounds all hokey. But, a purpose. Yeah, but I love it when, you know, when I go to write or when I go to record an album, uh, you know, I annoy all my friends because I ask them if I can borrow their guitar for a week because I feel like, you know, I've got my D28 and I love it. You know, I've written nice. uh, the lion's share of the stuff I've written on that or on my Strat or whatever, Telly. But then, you know, if I play someone else's guitar, it has someone else's, that guitar has its own mojo, its own vibe, yeah. its own songs, like its own ghosts live in that wood. This is a living instrument, living creature. It was a piece of wood at one point. And Neil Young says every guitar has a certain number of songs he can write in that guitar. And he and owns Hank Williams' all, guitar, for God's sake. That guitar. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I firmly believe in that. I mean, tube amps almost are like that, too. They're, they're, they're magical creatures yeah. that are fickle. You know, happy on one day, sad on another. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. But they're, but it's when true they're... with tube amps. Yeah, drums are like that, too. Anything made of wood. I think my problem is I'm really slow to make up my mind about instruments. I need to own an amp or a plug-in, or a guitar for like a year or at least six months before I can really decide, is, is this a keeper or not? Yeah. And so I don't buy and sell and trade a lot of stuff because if I get something, I hold on to it for quite a long time just before I even decide whether we're in love or not. Yeah. Well, you know, I've had this SG, I got this SG after the Westerberg tour. This is back in the days when guitar companies gave away guitars more often than they do now. They said, if you use a Gibson guitar on a TV show on this Westbrook tour will give you any Gibson you want. Okay, so we got a gig. We played, that band played on that, what's the Scottish guy, Craig Ferguson. We played uh-huh. on his show. And at the end, I called Gibson and said, okay, I played a Les Paul on that show. And they said, what do you want? And I said, I want an SG. Because Dan Wilson and Gary Lewis here from right. Minneapolis, from Semisonic and the Jayhawks, both play red SGs, right? And I got the SG, and I've had that SG for seven years, and I just decided this week, you know what? I've never loved this guitar. I can't make it do anything, and I'm, I'm going to trade it for a Jazzmaster or something. Uh, I'm curious, what uh, what gauge strings do you put on your Gibsons? I always put 11s. Like I didn't figure out that I liked Gibsons Me too. until I put 11s on it. You know? I put 11s on everything, uh, even heavier on some, uh-huh. some other uh, guitars, but I never use 10s anymore because you know, if you're in a three-piece band and you break a string... yeah. You are out of luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I always say that you you are all when as the guitar player in a three piece band, you are all the harmonic motion essentially that's happening in that band, and that's a lot of responsibility. It's, it's honestly it's way too much work for me. I've done a few shows like that, and I I, I I will go so far as to say that I didn't enjoy it. 
Like it I, took I'm, me a while. It's exhausting, and I'm not a young man. I am 52 years old, and it's also a very high energy band. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 very loud, rock and fast music. A lot of it is, and um, but you know, when it's working, man, it's 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 so rewarding. It's so great. There's nothing that you can go your whole life and not have a band. To me, anyway like I have right now where we all get along so well and we're so tuned into each other musically. And so I just want to do it as much as possible. Yeah. So how many, we can. you guys played down at South by Southwest. Were you doing your own thing there or were you supporting? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we toured our way down there playing with Freddie Johnston in Kansas city and Oklahoma city, but we also uh, opened those shows doing our okay. own thing. And then when we got to South by, we did, sets on our own. We did a bunch of sets with uh, Freedy, and then we did our debut set with Gary Lewis. Very nice. Those are good names to be uh, to be associated with, man. I mean, those are some of my favorite writers and guitar players. I mean, as a, as a young man, you know, you you've, I, did you ever learn solos note for note as a young guitar player? Like I you tried to when I was a kid, but yeah. um, really lacked the um, attention span and dexterity. Yeah to do that well. I think I learned like Eric Clapton's Crossroads solo yeah. when I was a kid and maybe an Allman Brothers thing and that was about the extent of it. Yeah. I learned I learned a few. The reason I'm touching on this is that I learned a few when I was really young, you know, like 12, 13, 14, 15, like the learning how to play. Uh, I remember Eagles Hotel California was the first one I learned like note for note start to finish, which was very, ambi- very ambitious, you know, because those are pretty good guitar players. Um, but then, you know, I, I, you know, I, that's when I got my own thing. I stopped learning people's solos. Cause like, you know, you really don't get your own voice and I don't mean your actual voice. I mean your artistic voice until you like do your own thing. So I did my own thing for a long time. But then in college, I was like such a fan of, uh, uh, Hollywood town hall and tomorrow, the green grass that I, I actually went and learned a few of Gary's solos note for note. Like as an adult, that's the last solo that I've learned note for note to date. Um, because I just love the way Gary plays. And I love his like faux pedal steel thing that he does. Yeah. Uh, and I love his fuzz tone that he thing that he does because he's he's not a guitar hero, but yet he's still got his own thing, and he's a little off kilter, like surfing, like a little bit of the Neil Young visceral thing going, but yet he's a little more melodic than Neil. And yeah, all true. You know, and I I just love the way he plays, and I you know I'm happy to see them back again. I saw them at the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. It was a year ago, fall out here. So I'm happy to see. Oh, them was playing. it good? Oh yeah, it was good. You know, I. I admit that you know I'm. I, I wanted to hear those songs from those two records, but you know the new the new record is is just is good. Uh, I'm Gary not... solo record Vagabonds. Yeah. Which yeah, we played a bunch of songs on with. Uh, we played a bunch of songs off of that record with him at South by. Yeah. Is a really criminally underrated record. Man, yeah. it sounds like Stephen Stills' Manassas or something. And he it's did it out really here. Really good record. He did it out here in like the whole Laurel Canyon. We've got this little scene. Like L.A. is such a funny town because. You know, we've got the industry here, so we kind of like serve at that, you know, serve at the the pleasure of that beast. Um, but there's so many. You know, there's LA is so dynamic. I mean, people from the Midwest. I remember I have friends who even today badmouth Los Angeles, and I even tell them like, you know, don't come. It's terrible here. But what I really think is it's actually great to live here because it's. I lived in New York doing music there. I lived in Chicago doing music there. I've done and I've played all over the country, all over the world. It's actually a good town to be a musician. I mean, like you said, there's going to be that jagaloon in the Humvee you know, or Hummer who's sold a trillion records, but there are so many great things and so many people out here. Um, and there's different styles. There's like an underground country kind of scene. You've got the Laurel Canyon thing. You've got the Topanga Canyon thing with like the Neil Young devotees. And it's, it's really vibrant. And I'm glad to see guys like, you know, Loris coming out here to do a record. 
Well, his record smells like Laurel Canyon, big time. <laughs> and yeah. I love that record. I know that the vibe you're talking about. I love going out to L.A. and playing and working. You know, I just didn't. I just don't think I could handle yeah. living there. But driving through the canyons and stuff like that, I get such a a feeling. Especially since I'm when I'm there, I'm a you know I'm a tourist. Yeah, um, it's overwhelming. It's it is. absolutely overwhelming. Not so much driving down Sunset because that's not. Well, That's great, but even though, driving through the canyons, though, that. or driving up to, up, you know, on the Pacific Coast Highway or whatever, I just, man, it's, it's unbelievable to me. Yeah, it's almost like it shouldn't exist. You know, that's, yeah. that's, and it, it, and it wouldn't if it weren't for all that snow melt from up in the Sierra Nevadas. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> exactly. it's like Vegas. But it's just so, yeah. so unearthly beautiful. These towns yeah, and that, that feeling is all over, uh, all over Gary's record. I, I met, I got to be friends with, um, Danny, the singer from uh, Three Dog Night, and uh, many years ago, and they covered one of my songs on an album they did a few years ago. Actually, they covered it with, I think it's Three Dog Night with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And they covered a song I wrote called Sault Ste. Marie, and nice. a couple times I went out and hung out in Danny's house up in the canyon, and he told me he bought it in, like, 1970 when Three Dog Night was at the height of... They were the biggest selling group in the world at that yeah. point. And he... Um, he paid like I forget. He told me something. He paid like thirty thousand or something like that. I can't remember the number. You know, and it's just it's it's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's. We've got about enough time for one more track off of this record, and I want to I want to get this on here too. This is the track "Everybody Lies," and you said that you really really like this track. I mean, every every band, you know, every artist, like they do a record of tunes, and you know, you you, you always want to believe that your your most recent record is your best. But there are certain songs on there that are maybe more special to you than others. Tell me why this one's so special to you. I like this one because I wrote it with Paul Westerberg, and I love what he did with it. And um, I think this song, I just like it because it it's, uh, sums up about everything what, that me and a lot of other people I know in Minneapolis think about uh, the music business. <laughs> such as it is, man, such as it is. All right, so this is Kevin Bowe. He's an amazing artist. He fronts the band, the Okima Prophets. He's based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, but he's frequently on the road. Uh, you'll catch him uh, playing in a town near you, perhaps perhaps with himself and his own band, or perhaps with other great bands like Freddie Johnston, Gary Loris, and others. Uh, and this is the track Everybody Lies from his most recent record, Natchez Trace. <laughs>
Everybody Lies from Kevin Bowe. That's Bowe with an E, K-E-V-I-N-B-O-W-E. You can learn about him at kevinbowe.com. Also on the Facebook, but he uses the moniker from his band, which is Kevin Bowe and the Okima Prophets. He's also on Twitter. Uh, you can find him at kjbow, uh, that, at that, rather, at Twitter. And I've got him live on the air. He's joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's got that new record, came out just late last year. And tell me, what uh, what are you working on next here, before we let you go here, Kevin? I am, one of the things I'm working on right now that I'm most excited about is a band from Minneapolis here called Communist Daughter. They're, I guess you have, if you had to pigeonhole them, you'd call them an indie folk band, but it's uh, um, a guy, Johnny Solomon, writes the songs, and uh, his, I guess I can call her his fiance now, Molly Moore, uh, they sing together, and they've got, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like Simon and Garfunkel level beauty to their harmonies. They were just born to sing together. And uh, his songwriting is fantastic, and they have a very ghostly, haunting sound, and producing that record has been, uh, is, uh, we're about half done with it, maybe a little more. Uh, you'll definitely be hearing more from this band. And when uh, when is that slated to be released, you think, Ballpark? Um, let's say... Um, like fall, maybe? Let's say this summer. Summer? Okay. Yeah. Very nice. When you've got your own band, you've got, uh, you just, like I said, wrapped up a little tour you did down to Austin and back playing. You had Kentucky. Looks like you had some dates. It's like Massachusetts, Illinois, New York City, New Jersey, Pennsylvania this year already, correct? Yeah, that was a fun tour. That was right after the South by tour. Okay. Um, and we're looking for, you know, if someone's listening to this and they want us to come out and play, uh-huh. I'm easy to find. And I'm cheap to book. I will definitely put them in touch with you, Kevin. I, it's been great talking to you. And then you've also got a gig, like a homecoming gig, this Saturday. That's April the 13th. That's at the Astor Cafe in Minneapolis. So if you happen to be in that area, please make it out to that show. Pick up a disc. Pick up 10. Christmas, as you know, is right around the corner. Or Hanukkah, <laughs> as the case may be. Uh, you know, it's been it's just been fantastic talking with you, man. I really appreciate it, taking out the time out of you know, your, your busy schedule up there and uh, go uh, go! make sure that uh, snowblower starts, man. Absolutely. Yeah, nice one. Thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> hey, you ever need a favor in Minneapolis, you, uh, give me a call. I'll hook you up. Uh, I, I, be careful what you say, man. <laughs> Next thing you know, I'll be sleeping on your couch. We'll be hitting every brew pub within 100 miles. 
Uh, I got a nice pouch. Uh, all right. So thanks to Kevin Bowe, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton, and to Valentina Rivera and Hector Lozano from Lancer Radio. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. Please be good to one another.